This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before we begin the actual podcast episode, we need to give a, a couple of little reminders here from the beginning for everyone that would want to support our show and loves listening to this. First off, thank you all very much. I would like to remind each and every person out there that if you want to add free versions of this podcast to please check out Patreon, because for a dollar a month, you not only get ad free episodes, but simultaneously you get bonus episodes, additional podcast episodes. If this is something that you listen to. And again, those are ad free because they are on Patreon. Uh, simultaneously, if you also really love supporting this podcast and you like learning things, please make sure to get this month's Chirp audiobook, which is Worlds at War, which is a look at things from the perspective of East versus West in a kind of global conflict that has spanned back not just centuries, but thousands of years and is very fun to look at. It's one of those big, uh, big dynamics in terms of history that is very fun to explore. And this book is on sale right now for just $3 at chirpbooks.com slash history. It will be linked in the description. Hello, everyone. Stucker, you here? And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Now, before we begin, and I know you probably already listened to the intro already, I'm going to give you a heads up. that Today's episode is probably going to be a little bit controversial. There will be some strong feelings for people. And, and by a little, I mean a lot. If you've been following the History of Everything podcast, uh, whether by our YouTube channel or in Discord or anything, or you just read the title for that matter, then you probably know that this week's theme that we are going to be discussing and have been talking about is American interventionism in history, which is a topic that depending on the person, their background or their politics, like their views on things, uh, that's probably going to be a pretty bit, uh, pretty bit contested as a topic. Don't what? you think? That is crazy. I'm from the Caribbean. We love American intervention. Wow, I can't say that word. I learned that today. <laughs> Interventionism. <laughs> so for anyone that doesn't know what it is that we're talking about when we say that, as a little refresher, intervention is when a government, and in this case we're talking specifically the United States, goes and involves itself in the affairs of another country. Now, the goal of that intervention may be the complete overthrow of a country's leader and government. Uh, this is a form that is known as regime change, or it could be a specific kind of action that is meant to target trade or elections or domestic affairs or anything really that involves that targeted state. That intervention could be unilateral, as in it only occurred at the behest of one country, or it could be multilateral because it was done by a coalition of different nations that are undertaking that action. And since World War II, um... The United States has done this quite a lot. Like a lot. The Cold War, in the Cold War, they did this a lot. Especially in places like Latin America, where it was our own backyard. Latin America and the Caribbean. Now, that is very different from what they had done 
previously. America before had more of an isolationist stance, and it held that like for most of its existence prior to this point. That's not to say that they didn't intervene. They did a lot. Every country kind of does. But early U.S. foreign policy was more so something that was defined by just the Monroe Doctrine. Essentially, the Western Hemisphere was closed to further European colonization. America was the principal power in the Americas. And simultaneously, we're not going to have to do anything else. That's just what it is. Um, no Europeans allowed. In short, that, that, that's what the Monroe Doctrine stands for. Okay, so this is about Grenada and the Caribbean, right? So you spelt it Granada multiple times in the notes, and that's in Spain. I is it, wait, it's not spelled the same. I typed all this out. Grenada so is, is, is it not like, actually spelled the same? No, no, it is not spelled the same. Oh, sweetheart, my lord. Okay, well, at the very least, I know that there's a difference. But yeah, the subject of what we're talking about today is going to be Grenada, which is very different from. Granada, which is in Spain. So Granada is like um, the Spice Island of the Caribbean, but it's definitely not. No, gra this, gran Granada. This is gran not the Granada? old Muslim emirate in the southern part of Spain that was conquered at the end of the Reconquista. This this is not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about intervention in Granada. And thank you, Gabby, as someone from the Caribbean who could come in here and tell me, hey, I spelled it wrong i was from looking the at the spelling and i'm like am i tripping like was was my entire life a lie <laughs> i know it's it's grenada you know no, so I, I definitely looked that up while you we were doing your little intro spiel case in point case in point this is with the caribbean you are from the caribbean this hits very close to home for you so i definitely want your input on this thing because we're talking american intervention so um you growing up in a uh, more i'm gonna use the term british school system in the caribbean did, did you go over that extensively at all when, when you were growing up? Because it was more focused on the Caribbean history. So did it go into all the stuff that was happening from like the 40s through the, uh, through the 80s? No, because you have to remember I only went to school there for primary school. And then I was homeschooled through the U.S. for middle school, if that makes sense. Ah, so most of so the serious stuff was the, left out. Exactly. Like we learn about our culture. We learn about the other islands we learn about our history but we didn't learn anything about the u.s but i could tell you this people do not like americans and i was an american there is a general feeling that is over the world and for anyone that is listening right now don't take offense to any of these things and if people wonder why it is that around the world there is specific mistrustful views of america as an entity there are reasons for that. Some of it is from ideological propaganda. Some of it is from specifically actions that America did. And this is one of those things that kind of gives that image. Though this is easily one of the least severe of any of the other ones that have been done. So what we're, what we're talking about, what we're going into is the Cold War. But before we get really into that, we're going to have a short little ad break before we start the actual story. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. 
Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So here we are, talking about the Cold War. That's going to be, that's like the crucial setting for all of us that we need to go into. So in the early 1980s, the Cold War was heating up again, as it was bound to do so after a period of cooling down from the mid 1960s to late 1979. And there's this tiny Caribbean nation by the name of Grenada, which had undergone a communist revolution in 1979, and four years later would find itself in a rather violent coup. The violent coup, the strategic geographic importance of Grenada, and the presence of Cuban advisors, along with hundreds of other American medical students on the island, would, um, would kind of create a bit of a political hotspot and firestorm that the entire world, particularly with America, was paying attention to. And so with America wanting to rescue those American students, as well as prevent Grenada from becoming a more radical communist stronghold, the Reagan administration, and yes, we're going to be going in and talking about Ronald Reagan, he, um, he and the political elite felt that they were compelled to act. And a decade after the United States rather had a horrible experience in Vietnam, the U.S. military came back into action and invaded Grenada. But before we get into this a little bit too deeply, I want to provide for people a little bit of the context of what Grenada is, because not nearly as many people may be familiar with it. If you're from the Caribbean like my wife, you, you are definitely well aware. But for a lot of people listening, they may not fully understand it. So for anyone that is confused, in the southern parts of the Caribbean, just north of South America, there is a small island. This had been discovered by the Spanish, which was then ceded to the British, which was then later purchased by the French in the mid-1600s. And this was an island that had a very tropical climate that made it perfect for growing sugarcane and cocoa and other cash crops. Although it was relatively far from the United States, Grenada became embroiled in the American Revolution when that broke out due to the French allying with the United States. And at the time, of course, it was owned by France. This, this wouldn't last. This is going to be one of those islands, like in many places in the Caribbean, as I'm sure you've probably covered in a number so, of your histories, how many times it switched. Well, Trinidad is called Port of Spain, but then we were a British colony. Yep. So I love that for us. Just pass back and forth between yep. the European. It's like the European empires at this point are the abusive parents that keep on passing kids back and forth between uh, domestic disputes. That really is an accurate way to look at this because they would do the really toxic thing in a relationship where it's like, oh, no, you're not allowed to have relations with that person. Mercantilism. You're not allowed to trade with them. It's only with me. It's only with your mother country. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. If you want to draw a comparison, the empires of old are straight up abusive parents. They're just doing they, they did their best. What the, do you mean? The literal term for them was mother country. That was the term, was mother country. I can guarantee nobody called Britain that. No one called Britain mommy? Oh, man. Stop. <laughs> so We got like a bunch of reviews that are like, your tangents are annoying, so I'm not going to talk at all anymore. 
Continue. No, people Carry love your on. tangents. And the thing is, we get weird reviews on a number of things at different times. You never know what it is. If you like her tangents, let us know. Put it in the comments of this podcast. So going back to the history, 17 years before all that happened with the American Revolution, Grenada had been given to Britain during the Seven Years War, which was also then known as the French and Indian War in the Americas. And so now at war with Britain during that time, France took the opportunity to reclaim its former island. However, Britain then got the island back in 1783 at the formal conclusion of the American Revolutionary War. In 1795, a rather violent rebellion broke out against British rule that was inspired by the French Revolution, and using a significant degree of force, 16 regiments were then sent in by the British to quell the rebellion, and it was done so by 1796. It had a bit of a back and forth and a bit of a violent history. So now you have this island, which at this point only has, I think it's around 100,000, 115, 120. It has a very small population. And over the course of its history, it was very oftentimes in dire economic situations. It wasn't great. Due to slavery having once been very prominent on the island, followed by the imported labor from different East Indian people here, as you would see all across the Caribbean. This is one of the reasons why there's large amounts of Indian, like not Native American, but from India people in the Caribbean. Oh, it's me. Yeah, literally. It's, it's you. It's you. It's like your family. That's one of the things that would happen. This is something that would change the demographics. And it would see over time a lot of racial and social class tensions. If we fast forward to 1967, colonialism has effectively collapsed at this point throughout the world after World War II. And Grenada, at this point, was a self-governing, autonomous state that had control mostly over its own internal affairs. However, it still technically remained a part of the British Empire. And seven years later, Grenada was finally granted its status of an independent nation and joined the Commonwealth of Nations, maintaining a connection to Britain. So the British monarch at that time, when it was Elizabeth II, rest in peace, I guess, uh, she was still technically the head of Grenada. She was the head of state for it. And Britain had a governor general that was appointed by Britain that would kind of oversee how things were going for them. So as a member of the Commonwealth, Grenada's governor general would serve as the ceremonial head of state and as the representative of the British monarch. The nation would also continue to rely on Britain for economic support, which would create this issue where they didn't really know how stable or viable this new independent state and government was going to be. The prime minister who went and gained full power in 1974 was a rather controversial figure by the name of Eric Gary, who allegedly used a private police force known as the Mongoose Gang, like the animal, the Mongoose, in order to oppress his opponents. He was a bit of a spicy character. Have you heard about this guy before, Gabby? Eric Gary, the head of Grenada? I've heard the name. So, so his gang that he would use to kind of control things around here, right? He, um, from 1967 until he was ousted in a coup in 1979, he personally would approve all government spending and hiring decisions, and he granted contracts to his supporters, like anyone that was 
his friend or family or fans. Yeah, he, he gave them government contracts. And when you have these systems, oh, I know I'm looking at on your face here and you're talking. I'm sorry. I'm like, that just sounds like a regular day in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. That was a common thing in Trinidad. I remember when we did I that too. I love Trinidad, but truly. Also, have you heard of, um, well, we have to do an episode on Hades because Papa Doc is a whole other. Yeah, Haiti is a thing I'm considering doing for the Patreon one because we do talk about the, the Haitian intervention in the YouTube episode that's coming out tomorrow. For anyone listening, my um, my dad is from Haiti. So my a lot of my dad's side of the family are Haitian. So I have a I have I have I have a fun time. Yeah. With all of this. It's it's fun. So corruption, nepotism, and oh yeah, using that private uh police force to brutally cr- like crush anyone that would get in his way. Protesters, political opponents, you know, just anything like that. The simple stuff. He also would uh heavily repress any kind of organized labor movements and the news media. Everything was under control for him. When it came to his international presence, though, it was also really interesting because he was rather eccentric and he he was a firm, not just believer, but avid searcher for UFOs. He firmly believed that there were UFOs that were constantly flying over the sky, even over his own land, and that the Earth needed to investigate it like that needed to be a global effort. So he was going to like the UN and trying to get the UN to launch these big investigative campaigns into finding UFOs. Okay, so I agree with him there. Yeah. He also was huge into beauty contests and these kinds of things. So he got invited at one point to uh, judge a Miss World beauty contest. So that was uh, that was something that he did. In fact, in fact, on March 12th, 1979, Eric left Grenada for talks to the United Nations on UFOs. And the next day, literally the next day, Maurice Bishop, who was a member of the socialist opposition New Jewel Movement, went and overthrew Gary's government. It was now a full-blown socialist revolution. Now, although we say that this was a socialist revolution on Grenada, popularly known as something called the, uh, the Revo or Revo, this wasn't a huge deal. For the international community, because this was a small, tiny island. It was only 100,000 people. It did attract widespread attention in the United States and the more English-speaking world, because we're talking about former British colony and the United States on their doorstep. It was a big deal to them, because many of the Grenadians were Black and they spoke English, which, considering the time that we're talking about here in, like, the 70s going into the 80s, This is a potential issue to influence African-Americans that the United States feared could happen with communist revolutionaries. You said Grenadians. It's Grenadians. Grenadians. Yeah. And you said Grenadians. That sounds better, but that sounds like someone. It's like Trinidad, Trinidadian, the I-N. It sounds like someone is just saying it's a tropical Canadian. It's a Grenadian. It's I-A-N. That's what you say. You said Grenadian. It's a Canadian with grapefruit. Grapefruit. It's a Grenadian. So would you you say I'm a Trinidadian? Well, if you were a male, I'd call you a Trinidadian, if that was the case. Okay, I'm I'm leaving. (laughs) Goodbye. It was nice being on this podcast. (laughs) But you you get what I mean. Okay, so I messed that up. Uh, Grenadian. Grenadian? Wait, I'm doing it. Grenadian. I'm doing it again. Okay, Grenadian. So that was, that was like the fear that the United States had at that point. 
And it was really only going to get worse, though. But before we get into that, it is time for an ad break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back. All right, so... What happens then is that Bishop goes and dissolves the parliament model that they had here of government that was carried over from British colonialism in favor of local committees. The new People's Revolutionary Government, or PRG, would then seek assistance from Cuba and the Soviet Union, but particularly Cuba, because, of course, it's very close, so that, that makes the most sense. And that, reaching out to Cuba, is a big no-no-no for the United States. Because that is going to immediately bring them into conflict, and the two governments were going to get very hostile to one another. But over time, it wouldn't necessarily be that way. In June of 1983, Bishop would actually go and visit the United States to try and normalize diplomatic relations between the two countries, and it kind of would work, at least initially. Bishop's June 1983 visit, while good for him, at least at that time, that would upset a lot of the other socialist leaders in his government who wanted nothing to do with the United States. Anything like that, you know, the the capitalist West. So in early October, Bishop and the other Grenadian ministers then went on an international trip in order to seek developmental aid. And while he was abroad, the deputy prime minister, a man by the name of Bernard Cord, then organized a coup. The trap was sprung on October 12th, 1983, which then placed Bishop under house arrest with the help of his military leadership. Cord was not open to negotiations. This was a hardline socialist, someone way more extreme than Bishop, and he considered his boss to be, quote, unacceptably moderate. He also considered that the existing committee members, like the leadership in the PRG, were weak. They couldn't make the hard decisions, which I'm going to say this right now. When you have a communist that is telling someone that they can't make the hard decisions, which you know that any time a political leader says something like that, um, we're talking about something that is going to result in horrible, horrible, horrible things happening. See, Cord assumed that the widespread unrest that was going to come out of this would quickly fade during the house arrest of Bishop as such turmoil had also fizzled out before in any previous issues in the early 1970s. But in the aftermath of his coup, many international leaders considered that Ford's move was more of a power grab and not genuinely something that was motivated by Marxism or socialism. The fizzling out didn't happen. Things only got worse, both internally and externally. Because after Bishop went and got arrested, public outrage was so bad that it, and it didn't dissipate. It absolutely did not dissipate as court expected. And those hard decisions that, uh, like very hard decisions that the other side was not willing to make, he was probably going to have to make them himself. Because a week into Bishop's house arrest, a large throng of supporters forcibly freed him 
from his arrest and then marched him across the island to a place called Fort Rupert, which ironically at the time, you know what they were doing here? They marched him directly past the house of Bernard Court. Like the entire leader of the coup, they marched him past their house where he was unprotected, no guards, no nothing. And they just left him there. Instead of capturing Cord, the people just continued on to Fort Rupert, where Bishop would meet with some of his advisors and just start giving speeches and all kinds of stuff. They just let it happen. And so after being unnoticed by this throng of supporters, Cord was then able to get back in touch with a bunch of his military allies. And now they themselves were going to be coming. And it wasn't going to be good. They used armored personnel carriers, these APCs. And with these armored vehicles, they stormed Fort Rupert. They ran over a bunch of people, killing them, innocent civilians who hadn't done anything, and they just ran into there, ramming them over. And then his soldiers jumped out and quickly rearrest and then execute Bishop and his advisors. Like, line them all up, sit them down, shoot them in the head, boom, done, it's over. Cord soldiers did this, and then a radio announcement declared that anyone who, quote, violated the peace would then be shot on sight. Martial law was declared, it was done. And the world saw that shit wasn't just going to go away. Something was going to have to happen. But at the same time, foreign correspondents couldn't get news out of the horrors of what was happening because they were banned from the island. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't get there. Now, Cord is screwed up. He has done, he's come down way too harsh, and he is making enemies out of everyone. He needs friends. He needs them fast. So what he does is he tries to go to the Cubans, the natural socialist communist allies, and tries to get them on board with all this. But Fidel Castro had actually considered Bishop to be a personal friend of his. No, he he thought of Bishop as like a good friend. So this guy that had just freaking executed him in cold blood in a violent government takeover. uh, Yeah, no, he didn't want anything to do with it. Just straight up refused him aid. Is with the, okay, okay. So where I'm from, we had a coup in 1991 or 1992. It was a coup in the early 90s. Was that the Islamic one? I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it, it, I think it was where they shot like the prime minister and the red house. We have a red house and a white house. And if you go visit it where um, parliament meets, you can see the bullet holes in the ceiling. It was a beautifully carved ceiling. Okay. I mean, violent coup. And the real joke of it all is my dad was a doctor. So like, even though they're on martial law and you're not allowed to leave your house, the doctors have to, he has some fun stories. Oh, but boy. also he lived, he lived in Haiti on the Papa Doc. So like, oh boy, you know, that's going to be a whole other thing that we're going to have to get into. We need to do that episode because I think it would be so fun. My dad has all of these super fun stories and he loves talking about them. Remember we said Haitian Revolution needed to be an episode. So that would be that would be a, a, a good one, too. Well, that's Haitian Revolution. But what about Haiti after the revolution? That's, that's my where point. Papa There's a Doc. lot of stuff with Haiti we can do. OK, perfect. All right. So back to the coup. Back to the coup. Right. Uh, he is straight up panicking at this point. Cord is like, okay, so the Cubans aren't going to help. So what does he do? He turns to the Soviet Union because he's more closely aligned with the hardline stances of the Soviet Union than Bishop was. But despite sending him military aid, 
Moscow doesn't really want anything to do with Grenada. They deemed that such a small island, such an inconsequential thing, was not worth a potential direct intervention in America's backyard. That was going to be way too great of a risk. So this violent little coup that got way out of hand was now completely on its own. And it is into all of this, in this panic, that the U.S. comes. But before we get into that, we're going to have an ad break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Okay, so coup happens. U.S. gets involved. Here's the issue. Here's the issue. This coup happened so quickly and so suddenly that the U.S. was completely unprepared for it. They had no idea that anything like this was happening. Hell, they didn't have any plans that existed for intervening on the island. Most of the people in the military, like especially on the ground, like the soldiers themselves, they had no idea where Grenada was. Or the fact that it was an independent nation. They literally didn't know. It's like that meme of like, ah, yes, insert those random people over here who stand against our values. You you know the, the thing that I'm talking about here in this situation. Like most of the military personnel literally did not know where Grenada was. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know where Grenada was? No, oh my most gosh. of the it's world like doesn't. When people go, oh, you're from Trinidad? Um... Do you mind me asking where that is? And I'm like, look, do you know where Venezuela is? Just look off at the tip of Venezuela. And that goes for most Caribbean nations. Find Venezuela. Everybody knows where that is. Yeah, people know Cuba. People then know go, Jamaica. Then go, if you're looking at the map, go right. Just go towards the ocean. The dots on the map are our countries. Thank you. Thank how, you so much. Debbie, I have to ask, as, as a Trinidadian, how does it feel when you understand that more people know Jamaica than Trinidad? I personally don't care because Trinidad invented the steel pan. <laughs> we have the best carnival. Truly, Nicki Minaj says she's from Trinidad. I don't know if that's true, but if, listen, okay, Trinidad is just way cooler. Who is from Jamaica? Thanks. I rest <laughs> my case. I rest my case. How oh. could you do this to me? Your wife. You're going to talk about Jamaica in front of me? Oh, just as an example. What am I, Jamaican? I'm you joking. crazy? I love Jamaica and I will take you there one day. What am I, Jamaican? You crazy? I wish we had like a boo soundboard noise. It sounds like you're going to take me there, but in a body bag at this point. No, no, no. I'll take you to Jamaica. I didn't say I'm bringing you back. <laughs> so, okay. So, as, as we said, for like going places, the, the military, a lot of them have no idea where this is. And planning has to begin immediately for some kind of evacuation operation for the hundreds of American students that are on the island, potentially with fights against both the Grenadian or Grenadian and also the Cuban military. They don't know what is going to be there. Time was crucial, and it was feared that the longer that this goes on, the, the closer that it could become to the Iranian hostage crisis of 1979 to 81. This is very recent in memory. And if it develops that way, this could be bad. It could be really bad. 
if Cord had enough time to know that foreign intervention was on the way, then he could take all these students and people hostage. So when the evacuation order came down on October 19th, the military had less than four days to plan. And in the scramble, they figured out, they, they, not only did most of the people in the military not know where like Grenada was, they simultaneously didn't have any military maps of Grenada. They had nothing. They had no resources. They had nothing showing any parts of the internal island, nothing with its topography, nothing. So I mean, it's an island. It's really not hard to navigate. You walk until you reach the water. Rivers, streets, locations of cities, anything. They didn't know any of it. You walk until you reach the water and then you're like, well, nobody's here. So just choose. You could go left or right. There's so many. It's so easy to navigate an island. Okay, but knowing where the cities were and being able to plan for military is pretty important with that. So you know what they had to do? What did they do? One of their guys went down to literally one of the local uh, tourist places. In, in Florida there, or it was like one of the local shops, and bought a tourist map of Grenada. That was a smart man. Yep. And Actually, then, that's genius. And then they just overlaid it with, with a grid square. That's really that's smart. It. That's all they did. That is how they got their maps to plan this war, like this intervention that they were going to be doing. So basically, if we, if a Caribbean nation ever wants to piss off the U.S., we just need to burn all of the tourist maps. No, no, no. Just just suddenly randomly change a whole bunch of street names or other things prior to it. And then nothing is going to match up. They're going to be having all this planning and all the stuff going into it and nothing matches. But then, of course, by that time, we have GPS and that's not going to stop anything because they can just get the data. It's very different in the 70s and 80s versus what it was would be now. Very different. But it's funny because they, they did this because in Florida, Grenada was one of the locations that could be a popular Tourist site. It was a destination. So again, they just overlaid it with grid lines. And they also used a copy, I kid you not, of The Economist in order to learn about the island. The Economist had an, had articles written about Grenada, culture, life, etc. you know, for like tourism stuff. So they used The Economist in order to know more about Grenada because they had nothing. They had no data going into it. But that being said, uh, lack of information was not exactly going to stop this ball from rolling because it was going to go. So the first operations in the invasion of Grenada would officially be uh, or would officially be called something Operation Urgent Fury. And that would begin during the pre-dawn hours of October 25th, in which U.S. Army Rangers would then land at Point Salinas Airfield, which was at the southern tip of the island. This would be the first use of the new Black Hawk attack helicopters and was one of the first integrated operations using different groups of special forces. We're talking Army Rangers, Marines, Navy SEALs, all together in one movement. The SEALs were deployed first, but they were struggling in the high surf in a waterborne amphibious landing for which they hadn't trained at all. Because you got to remember, all of this was sudden. So they're like, okay, we're going to be doing this onto this island that has this topography no preparation going in because they had no idea that they were ever going to be attacking anything like that before. So they ran into some issues. Eventually, the go-ahead is given to drop the Rangers by parachute without the SEALs having made it ashore. Unfortunately, that order was not anticipated, 
So the Rangers then had to rush to get ready while they were still on the transport planes. By the time the transport planes and the Black Hawk helicopters were over their drop points, it was daylight now. It was no longer night. They were fully exposed, and the Grenadian and Cuban forces were now firing at the aircraft. This, from how I'm describing it, sounds like a recipe for disaster. It could have gone bad. It could have gone really bad. But the funny part is, is that resistance was relatively light because, as we said before, Cuba and the Soviets were not interested in protecting the new regime. So although there were some Cuban forces that were there from previously, like work groups and that kind of thing that would fight, most of the support just straight up was not there. So resistance ended up being much lighter than it could have. Otherwise, a whole bunch of people could have lost their lives. Now, although the Marine helicopters and the Army paratroopers took fire during that landing, the U.S. then very quickly regained its momentum once troops were on the ground, and Army Rangers then quickly secured the Salinas Point airfield. And with the airfield secured, the U.S. was then able to bring in 5,000 troops. Airborne missions would continue. This, This would help the Special Forces rescue Governor General Paul Schoon and his wife and firing on enemy positions to clear the way for the groups of army rangers that were heading out to rescue medical students that were there at St. George's University. Okay, so this is the university I was thinking of. Yes. So when I was a child, my family would constantly talk about uh, the American University. And I'm pretty sure it is not an American University. It is a university that American students go to. But everybody calls it the American University, and I'm pretty sure it's because of quite literally this incident. So now everyone thinks that it's just an American University. And they're all like, we would fly over it when we flew to um, the U.S. Like we'd fly over the university. And my mom would point out, she's like, oh, yeah, that's the American University like that. They're like really important because of this, bro. You know, I wonder if from that there's a part in here that I wonder if it indicates that there actually is one that is more of an American presence, even at that time. Because as it turns out, there was two. Well, there are American universities. Like, there's the American University of the Caribbean, but I'm pretty sure it's on... Um, which island does the Netherlands own? There's an island, a Caribbean island that... It wasn't St. Kitts or Nevis. No, that wasn't either one. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's Why am I drawing a blank? Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Why am I drawing a blank on this? I should know this. I remember playing the Pirates game when I was a kid and I conquered it all the time. Why is it bothering me now? Well, there's Caribbean Netherlands. Um, Aruba. Aruba. Aruba, okay. Curaçao, St. Martin, and the Netherlands. So the Netherlands includes three 
public bodies located in the Caribbean region. Either way, the Netherlands has like a Caribbean presence, which is wild to me. But I'm pretty sure that's where like the American University of the Caribbean is located. But I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'm pretty sure it's on St. Martin. Oh, yeah, St. Martin. I think that, yeah, that was. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, that's the island the university is on, but I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Ah, uh, okay. So, from what I was talking about, though, the the uh, an obstacle occurred where, as it turns out, there wasn't one campus; there was two different medical school campuses. So, um, what if I, I don't know this because I am just talking in my butt at this point? What if one of those was more for foreign students, and that's why they might refer to it as the American one because that's the campus that all the foreign students go to, and most I are American. I don't think they know there's two campuses. Like, I am very sure everyone just. So the thing with Grenada is they always talk about it like, oh, there are a lot of Americans over there. And it's literally because of the medical school. Interesting. And I'm pretty sure they don't know like how many campuses there are. I'm pretty sure they just know it's one university and there are Americans there. Hmm. Well, either way, they had to find it. Well, not just one. They had to find two at this point. The other obstacle they had is when they're there. This is before the age of cell phones, right? Um, they didn't have a lot of communicative ability. There's this very famous story that occurred during the invasion of Grenada where a Navy SEAL that was on the mission to rescue the governor general had to use a payphone while there to call Fort Bragg and have airborne fire redirected in order to hold off approaching enemy forces. Because each hour, additional arriving troops at Fort Point Salinas would help turn the tide, but he had to do that in order to stop any of the enemy from approaching. Literally using a payphone to direct, not artillery fire, but call in airborne strikes. It's just hilarious to me. So while the army rangers then quickly made it to the medical, uh, like to the medical school, the second campus was surrounded by waiting enemy forces. And on October 26th, a helicopter assault would commence in order to land troops at the Grand Anse, the site of the second and smaller campus. And army rangers then learned about a third group of medical students that were elsewhere. At this point, enemy resistance diminished greatly, though. Despite that, U.S. forces were still being very thorough in moving slowly north across the island, expecting constantly that there was going to be counterattacks during the invasion. But it didn't really materialize. Like, there was resistance here and there. There was, but it wasn't nearly as much. Most troops, straight up, refused to fight back. A whole bunch of them didn't want to be any part in part of the coup. The Cubans didn't want to be causing any trouble when they were there. Most of them literally just gave up as it was. They were not wanting to fight back. On October 27th, so, the final major mission occurred, which captured a Grenadian military barracks. Although some American helicopters did crash in the assault, there was no enemy fire. Ultimately, only a handful of enemy soldiers were actually found at the barracks. At this point, most Grenadian and Cuban soldiers had ceased resistance with a whole bunch of them just dressing up in civilian clothing and getting out of there. Like they fled into the city in order to hide. Not as guerrilla fighters, but literally just to hide and escape capture. Almost 700 American and foreign medical students were then rescued without a single student casualty. So in the end, it was a massive victory for the U.S., at least on paper. 
The endings of geographical conflicts are always very complex. And intervention is a very messy thing. No matter what you do, there's always going to be some kind of response and it's going to be something that creates some problems. The successful rescue of all American informed medical students on the island of Grenada was a massive political victory for Ronald Reagan. Historically, this has been portrayed as an American victory over communism, though Grenada had only been an official socialist state since 1979. With such a swift victory and very few U.S. military casualties, Grenada was a huge morale boost for the United States because, remember, this is at the very end after the Vietnam War. You had the Watergate scandal, you had the resignation of President Richard Nixon, and so Reagan, who was a bit of the Cold War hawk, like he was the guy who was pushing all this military stuff, I mean, he, he vowed to aggressively defend everything that he could for America's interest with military force. And so Grenada, despite being so small, ended up paying off huge for him politically. That all being said, the aftermath of Grenada was not exactly all positive. I can't imagine it was. Yeah, that's typically what happens when military operations occur. The fact of the matter is, this came off the heels of the 1982 Falklands War between, uh, between Britain and Argentina. That's another one that I probably would like to cover because it's its own kind of dumb events in history that I just, I find so amusing, even though you know, it's a real conflict. It is a real conflict. That the lack of a British force getting involved in the liberation of people in a former English colony occurred. This was a bit of an embarrassment for the British. They were not happy about it, and it, it did not put Margaret Thatcher in as good of a light. She was very annoyed by this. Because since they had won a similar engagement against Argentina, Britain would look weak by not participating in Operation Urgent Fury. And as expected, Cuba, the Soviet Union, any other socialist power, they immediately protested the invasion of Grenada. But the Soviets' diplomatic reaction was not nearly as severe as it could have been because that same year, on September 1st, they had shot down a South Korean airliner, which looked horrible. And so anything to do with international issues, they were going to be way more muted because they didn't want anything to um, draw attention to them again. But despite those few powers, the global reaction was still overwhelmingly negative. As you can probably imagine, um, a country going in and invading another country, as we have seen with uh, Russia and Ukraine, as part of an, their whole thing with a special military operation, is another word that would mean intervention, but theirs is a full-blown massive in invasion. It's not well-received, typically, by the international community. A United States Security Council vote to condemn the invasion was vetoed by the United States, which cast the sole negative vote. Everyone else wanted to vote for it. The General Assembly also voted against the invasion by a wide margin. President Reagan dismissed the criticism as simply being anti-American, though most of the states in the majority of the UN General Assembly vote also had condemned the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan four years earlier. There was strong criticism from America's allies, particularly Canada, 
which had a sizable amount of foreign aid advisors in Grenada, people were not happy. The international community was not happy. But you know what's kind of weird? Despite the international community being upset about it, the people of Grenada were actually way more receptive about being invaded. Which sounds weird to say after the fact that is not the case in the majority of situations. It's not. But this could not have occurred at a better time to where it would be desired because they were so angry by the coup and the killings and the crackdowns and the martial law and everything that occurred that since this only happened a few weeks after, there was significantly less resistance from them. So where I'm from, and that's like a, a thing that happens. Where I'm from in Trinidad, we have a lot of crime. I mean, a lot of crime, like really upsetting crime. Like I still follow the news because I have all of my family living in Trinidad and I personally cannot go back to Trinidad because I think we're on some list where it's like not recommended for American tourists to go visit right now. And it's been like that, I think, starting this year. But it's always been like that if you are from there and like, you know, about mm -hmm. the island. So I haven't been there since like 2012, a really long time. But the crime is so bad that occasionally they'll have like an American come in and it's like an American cop or an American soldier person that's supposed to fix the crime and then they don't but they're always like really hopeful i guess so i think isn't it someone who comes in kind of takes charge of the police force does some stuff leaves and then it immediately goes back to being bad again no they don't even make it better they don't when even they're do there. anything they don't make it better when they're there that's the thing like if they oh. at least came in and they like transformed stuff and they helped that would be great is it only one guy typically yes it is. Oh, that's not going to do anything then if it's just one person. You can't have the American military come into your country to do anything. We're not going to be like, come on, boys, let's go. Come on, Stephen. We just did the entire episode. It's true. We just did the entire thing on U.S. intervention. Like, I get But it. people are typically happy if they have some help because there is a lot that happens in those islands a lot of the time and they're really lovely places with really lovely people but there's also underlying problems due to the fact that they weren't their own they weren't ruling themselves for so long mm -hmm. so then they started ruling themselves and it's just been a little bit rocky it's been a process well here's the thing i can remember my first time realizing that where i lived was not a paradise i was like 6 years old but the worst part is before that it literally was so calm because you can literally read up on the very first like abduction on the island, like the very first kidnapping. And then it just kind of like spiraled out of control As over the last time developed, like over my lifetime, which is so weird to think about. Like at some point it was perfectly safe and totally just calm. And then it just spiraled. So, yeah, I, don't, I mean, like, obviously there were coups before, but what's a little coup in the what's grand scheme coup? of things? In the grand scheme of things? Come on. Yeah. So, as I said, the, the Grenadian population was generally more 
accepting. The resistance was a fraction of what it otherwise would have been. And even the countries that were criticizing and angry at the United States did have to acknowledge that the regime that had taken over now was brutal. It was unpopular and a completely illegitimate government. The Grenadian people would grow to actually support the invasion. And today, they still observe October 25th, the day of the invasion, as a kind of Thanksgiving, a special day to remember how the U.S. military rescued them from a communist takeover and restored the constitutional government. Which is kind of a weird note to end on this, considering all the, the things and crap we could talk about for horrible U.S. interventions. But honestly, that is the thing with history, right? This is, this is the thing that we were talking about here. I know, again, it is a very weird thing to end on talking about the positives of it, because usually, historically, globally, American intervention does not exactly get a, a good rap. It doesn't. In, in many situations, it has gone badly. In fact, the episode that I'm releasing on the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel is specifically dedicated to those moments that went bad, that had really bad effects. Um, so look forward to that. If you haven't watched it already, do so. I'm not going to say what is the right interpretation. I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I can only tell you the stories about this. And I found this one to be so interesting because of all the different reactions, including the reactions of their own people. Well, here's the thing. As somebody who grew up overseas, and I'm telling you, like, remember when America invaded Iraq? Yeah. Overseas that day, the embassy, they sent out messages to Americans living abroad. So my dad is an American citizen. And so I'm an American that was born abroad because my dad is an American citizen. I'm an American citizen. My brother's an American citizen. So the funny thing about it is how would they have reacted if they left the American students on the island? And things went really south, right? When you live overseas, they send you like this little message, just like, hey, you know, like this is the location of the embassy. This is what's happening. And you're like, cool. But if you travel to a country outside of the like US where they specifically say, don't go there, bestie, because XYZ is going on. You know what happens? Do you, do you know what happens? They just leave you. If something goes south. They're like, well, bestie, we said don't go there. So you're SOL. Yeah. Good luck, Chuck. Figure it out. You should have left. We said leave. Um, and I only know this because um, when there was like the whole like invasion of Iraq or whatever, there was like this point where they basically were like, oh, it's totally fine. You know, it's totally OK. But here's the location of the embassy and just keep an eye on updates. Obviously, like we're Trinidad, like nothing was going to really happen in Trinidad, mm -hmm. but they do give you a little heads up. So like, what if they left these students there and then all of them died? Oh, it would have been a huge, huge It would have also been negative. So again, I'm not saying what they did was right. I know ne I'm never saying that, please. Geopolitics but. is a massive story of coulda, shoulda, woulda. Someone either does something, they could have done something. They should have done something. They would have done something if, but you'd never know. I the only thing that happens is that no matter what happens, there's always going to be people who criticize and get angry. It could be justified. It could not. You never really know. It's I get way angry. more complex. I get angry about a lot of things. Like you live with me. 
Yeah. I'm always mad. I'm always like, Stephen, how dare we do that? You know, because like I am. And then I have to sit down and go, well, oh, well, this reason, this reason, this reason. I'm not saying it's right, but these are the justifications. And this is why this country would do this thing and that country would do that thing. And Which is it. really funny because when we first started dating, when we were first married, our biggest fights were quite. And this is not relating to any of this, but if you want to keep listening, you can. Our biggest fights were basically. Political. Remember, mm-hmm. like we would always disagree because he would never come at something saying, oh, this was right. But I would come at something saying this is absolutely wrong. And like, I still believe that. But also it has helped me see looking at just like the politics behind it, the history behind it, the complexity of this the nuance, if you will. Exactly. Things are a lot more complicated than you would think they were, because while my family is super there, they were super happy to have independence in Trinidad because my mom was born, I think, three years after Trinidad gained their independence. My grandparents were married the year Trinidad gained their independence. They lived through. And I know all of the stories of under, you know, when they were still under like the British. Do you want to know what they still do and follow religiously? What? The royal family. Uh, no, fair enough. Fair enough. It's so happy to be independent, but also worship the royal family, even though they hated it, you know? So there's like a weird amount of complexity that comes with basically everything that unfolded in history. And unfortunately, it has impacted entire societies because of what happened. And the future is always fluid. Things will change. When we do the episode on Haiti... I'm sorry. I'm very passionate about Haiti. Um, I have a lot of cousins and family that live in Haiti and I have a lot of feelings about it. But also it is a complex situation. Oh, yeah. And ideally it never should have happened, but it did. So I don't mean to preach at people. I'm so sorry. I hope it doesn't come off as that. You haven't even said anything for views. You just said, I feel passionate about this. That's it. That's pretty much the gist of what you said is, hey, things are complex. I feel certain things. It's screwed up. It is so screwed up, but it's also like what happened. So all we can really do is learn from it and try to figure out ways to navigate it. Anyway, that is the end of this episode on American Intervention. Please check out the podcast YouTube episode uh, that we're going to be putting out talking about the the horrible ones that have happened. This was probably the lightest one that I could have done. But I really hope that you all enjoyed today's episode. Please. Go ahead and check out our Patreon uh, for ad-free episodes. Go and check out this month's audiobook. Go and check out our coffee. Check out everything you can to help support our production of content and varying things. Also, we are so sorry about ads on the episode. Ideally, we don't have to put ads on the episode. I don't even but know that, if we should be apologizing. There were a few, only a few people that said it. I don't know, I know how people I generally feel. I always feel so bad when people are like, oh, I hate the ads because they comment like on my TikTok and I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like it, it's a dollar and you get every single episode plus four extra episodes per month. So, you know, just do that. I'm so sorry because literally a dollar, you could just not listen on Spotify anymore. The podcast is part of the job. If there's anyone that says that something like this should be free, I apologize. We can't do that because like, with the hours that go into it. I, I know. I, I literally worked at 5 a.m. yesterday. I worked, what, until 5 p.m. today. I, I've, I work all the time. Plus then working with me. 
and for then helping me for content I'm here production. recording the episode. So like, I would love for my time to be super free because I, I want to share everything with you guys, but I'm so tired. <laughs> now this episode, of course, we did far fewer ad breaks. I know I said it far fewer times. So, all right, before we go ahead and end today's episode, we do need to talk about this week's listener story. So this one says, Stephen and Gabby, I love the podcast. It's been quite helpful at getting me through the tough days, trying to get through my history education degree while raising two children. Hey, good for you. Good for you. I wanted to share with you the story of my grandfather, Thomas Cotter Jr., affectionately known to his family as Pop. He was born in 1922 in Brooklyn, New York, and had an average suburban life living in Queens, New York, before the population boom caused it to become more urban. As a teenager, he joined the FDNY as a firefighter, and when he was 19, he was out playing football with his friends when they heard that Pearl Harbor had just been attacked. Of course, being the young American man that he was, he immediately wanted to join up to fight. However, because he was only 19, he needed his parents' permission to do so. My great-grandmother was hesitant to do this, being married to a World War I veteran herself. She knew the kind of misery and danger that he would face. Eventually, my great-grandfather convinced her to relent and sign the age waiver. That is so sad. I'm so sorry to interject, but just the World War I... And then sending her son off to World War II? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She agreed on the condition that he would wait to sign up until after Christmas. So at least he would get Christmas again. Okay. Oh, that's actually kind of nice. I, I understand that sentiment. Christmas came and went, and Pop joined the Marines. During training, he learned that if he joined the Raiders, he would earn extra money per month. That usually in the military means it's significantly more dangerous. Just as a heads up, Gabby, if you're, if you're offered bonus money, it means either more technical or more dangerous. And at this time I in history, that means me more this. dangerous. I know you're telling me this because you're like, Gabby, every time you have a bad day, you are like joining the military. But they won't let me in. I'm underweight. They were like, um, anyway, <laughs> they literally never called me back. <laughs> so he and his fellow recruits were often tested to see what areas they would fit best in in the service. Pop, being the young hotshot that he was, wanted to do well at everything. Eventually, he aced the test for radio operation and found himself as a frontline radio operator with the Raiders. This came with service in the Pacific and meant that he would experience several amphibious assaults and heavy combat. Ouch. One particular story always stuck me, or struck me, during a particularly difficult beach landing, he was forced to drop his backpack radio run to the tree line that if you didn't know this on the radio like they had these massive think think about my backpack that i wear my massive one for my computer and triple that size filled that's the radio because they carrying it with them to be able to call in things it was um pretty extensive so he ran to the tree line his commanding officer later asked him where the radio was and upon hearing that the radio was back on the beach he was commanded to go back and get it yeah it's a valuable piece of equipment they needed it Pop then borrowed an M1 from a squad mate, and he made his way back to the beach where the Japanese lines were still dug in. After dark, he began crawling through the low brush near the beach. Nights in the Pacific were a level of dark that nobody can really understand, and because of that, while he was crawling, he felt his gun hit something at the same moment that something metal hit him in the forehead. He would tell us that he knew it was kill or be killed, but he decided he did not want to be the killer, so he instead, he whispered the word Marine. When he spoke, he heard another man start to cry in front of him. 
It was another guy from his unit who had been lost and wandering the brush all day, trying to find his way to his unit. After his heart-stopping encounter, they retrieved the radio and made their way back to the squad. I am sure there were many more stories that he didn't tell us, but this is one that we often heard. Shortly after that, he came down with dengue fever. Initially, he tried to hide it. He didn't Not exactly... Not dengue. Come on. Okay, if you've ever had dengue, bestie, your life flashes before your eyes. You feel like you're about to die. I had it when I was a child. Oh, my neighbor had it. This lady literally, her mom ran to like my dad. My dad's a doctor. She ran to my dad's office and was like, she's dying. She didn't die, obviously, but you feel like your life is over. You literally do not feel like you will ever feel okay again. You feel like this is it. You don't feel like yourself. You feel like a ghost. I'm sorry. I'm trying to describe dengue. But yeah, no, what it says in here is you he guys, tried to hide it, but then he collapsed during roll yeah, call. Yeah, you guys just need to get dengue to really experience it. You need it. to get dengue, yeah. I think you everybody to- should experience this atrocity of a disease, okay? I'm sorry. <laughs> so he collapses during roll call and then as a result gets sent to hospital in New Zealand for several weeks. After the war ended in 1945, he returned to New York and the FDNY. A few years later, he applied to take an officer's exam and was informed that he did not have enough years as a firefighter to qualify. The city did not count the years that he was away in the Pacific, while he was still technically on the roster as a firefighter. This didn't really seem fair to Pop, who felt that his years in the Pacific should have counted towards his years of service. The city of New York agreed after a lawsuit, and Pop was promoted from fireman straight to lieutenant. This established a precedent that is still in place today that military service time cannot be counted against you in a workplace. He worked for the FDNY for his entire career when he eventually rose to the rank of deputy chief, having command over several firehouses. Pop would always tell his grandchildren that one of his proudest professional moments was when he was the first FDNY chief to request his firefighters not consume alcohol on shifts. That was his proud moment. Don't drink during your shift. Wait. Wait, my bosses do that every day and they haven't done anything cool in order to be able to claim that I can't drink <laughs> on shift. So. so at the time, firehouses were allowed to have and consume beer while on shift, which could have resulted in some members responding to fires slightly intoxicated. <laughs> so instead of alcohol, yeah, I can only imagine alcohol and <laughs> fire. That definitely mixes well. So instead of alcohol, he supplied his firehouses with tubs of ice cream. The FDNY started joking and lovingly calling Pop's Firehouses Cotter Ice Cream Parlors. He would go on to retire and spend the rest of his life being an involved father, grandfather, and great-grandfather to my family. He and my grandmother were incredibly forward-thinking and established acceptance and compassion of all their descendants, setting us up to live our lives, basically spending, fighting, and pushing for the acceptance of others. He passed away on November 17, 2010, and his funeral was attended by his huge family and numerous friends, a turnout that was a testament of how good he was to everyone he met. There are other stories I could share, but I know you have a time limit and I don't want to go and overburden you or your editor. Thanks for reading, sharing, and having a good day. Chris Campbell. That was such a good story. That was definitely one of the more positive ones that we've actually read in I here. just want to say that if my commander was like, go back and get the radio, I'd be like, you get it yourself. You can kill me because I'm going to die either way. And this is why they will not take me yeah, in the military. Yeah, that's, that's precisely why. That and that, the weight. And the fact and that the if they took my phone away from... Health issues and... Well, the, yeah, the health issues. Okay. Eyesight and... But what the, if I was... What if I just said I was super healthy? Are they going to check? Yes. Who's going to check? Yes, yes, they would. They're going to check. Yes. 
What if I'm like, you can't have my personal medical information. You're not going to get any accepted. They're going to. Okay. So I'm super healthy. FYI. Uh-huh. I just want to be part of Space Force. Uh-huh. I'm not going to meet one alien just because I have an illnesses or an illness. Actually, yeah. Probably. An illness or two. Yeah. In that scenario. Yeah. yeah. Elon Musk would let me join SpaceX. So you know what? The you space, could. Space Force can keep their space. They can keep their space, so they, they, they have plenty of space. So you're, you're distancing yourself from them, giving them a lot of space. James, cut all of this out. <laughs> <laughs> it is Any- disastrous. I'm so tired. Anyway, we got to end things here today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you have a good rest of your day, and goodbye, all. Bye. Bye.